So my submission to you last week, by the way, if you weren't here when we started the service, good morning. It's good to see everyone. But my submission to you last week in the first, kind of the first part of this sermon, it's a little odd, we're 27 weeks into Second Peter, or First and Second Peter, but uh, today's message is really a continuation of the thought from last week. And my submission to you then was that the Christian life that we are called to live is one that should be rooted in confidence and growing in zeal or affection. You should be able to see that in your Christian walk. That the more that you live as a Christian, the more confident you're becoming in your faith and in Jesus. And also at the same time, the more confident you're becoming, the more zealous you are for God, for his kingdom, for his works. We use an illustration of a tree that as a, as the parts of a tree that we admire, the growing branches and the fruit from the trees, just as those things are a product of the part of the tree that we can't see, that no one admires, the roots that are dug down deep, so the worship of God and the influential good works of your Christian life are a product of your confidence in Him. The fruit of your life is what people see, but what people can't see is the trust of your heart. And it is critical that you are confident in your trust of God. And so my premise and I'm restating it a little bit differently this week, but if you're a note-taker and you have one of our worship guides, we're going to fill in this life truth. My premise is that confidence in your faith is critical, and you should be doing all you can to preserve and grow in it. That confidence in what you believe is critical. You will only act on that which you are very confident in. And that you should be doing presently, continually in your life, everything that you can to preserve confidence and grow in confidence. And I'm getting that in part from Hebrews chapter 10 verse 35. The writer of Hebrews exhorts us, don't throw away your confidence in Christ because it will lead to a great reward. And the very fact that the writer of Hebrews would tell us, don't throw away your confidence in Christ, means that there may be times in our Christian life where we are tempted to do just that. Throw away, set aside, push aside our confidence in Jesus. We may not realize that's what we're doing, but we are tempted to it. Those who received that letter of Hebrews, those Jewish Christians They were being tempted and pressured to leave Christ due to persecutions and trials. And they were being tempted to go back to their old way of life or their old religious faith. And according to the letter of Hebrews, some of them were growing less attentive to Christian teaching and doctrine. They weren't paying much attention to it. They weren't reading. They weren't listening. And even if they were in a place where the word was being taught or they were reading, they weren't paying attention to it. They were beginning to be less present at the gathering of the believers. When the believers came together to worship, they were becoming less attentive to that. And so the the writer of Hebrews is encouraging Christians, stay faithful. Be confident. Jesus is alive and he's returning again. And he says in chapter 4 of Hebrews, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. And if you'll do that, 
you will receive mercy and you will find grace to help you in the time of need. And so what the reason we're talking about all of this is because it's the exact subject matter that Peter is addressing in this second letter to the church. They are facing the same thing. As a matter of fact, this letter was probably written within a 10-year period of Hebrews. Hebrews and 2 Peter probably written close together. And the people that Peter is writing to in the church, they are feeling the weight of suffering and persecution for their faith. They are experiencing the natural losses and the sacrifices that come from trying to live for the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of man. And they are being inundated with false teaching. False teachers, voices in the culture that sound really good and really right that are presenting things that are opposed to the gospel. And some of them are beginning to call into question their faith, the teaching of the apostles. These false teachers were saying that the apostles were teaching myths and that the very return of Christ was a fable, and people in the church were starting to wonder about that. Every day they were facing some kind of opposition that could create in them a crisis of confidence. Is this really true? Is this really worth my time? Is this really worth the energy? Is this really real? Do I have the truth above all other truth? Some of us have felt those same questions. And if a crisis of confidence hits and we begin to give in to that crisis of confidence, our zeal for the Lord fades. We're not as zealous, we're not as affectionate anymore for God because we're not as confident as we used to be in God. And if we continue down that road, Hebrews talks about there could be a falling away that happens. And so we talked about last week, this has so much relevance for us because we don't live immune to these same difficulties. Every day, you face some kind of loss in the earthly realm for your devotion to Christ. If you're truly following Jesus, every day you suffer some kind of loss for the gain of Jesus. And it's hard. If you will admit it, it's hard. And to varying degrees, there is some temptation in you to throw away your confidence in the Lord and His Word. You may just not think of it that way. When you are, ch- are faced with the choice of forgiving as Christ has forgiven or holding on to bitterness and thoughts of revenge, the decision you make is a matter of confidence. When opportunities for immorality come or a chance for financial gain through means of dishonesty, dishonesty whether you engage or you flee, from those opportunities is a matter of confidence. With the first one in forgiveness, it becomes an issue of, do I trust Jesus with the issue of justice and therefore I can forgive? Am I confident that his sacrifice is enough and I can forgive others? When it comes to immorality, It is a question of, do I believe that the greatest pleasures of life are at his throne so that I can leave lust behind? It's a matter of confidence. 
when it comes to being dishonest in order to have gain? Do I rely on the Lord to meet my needs? Do I trust him to provide everything I need? That is an issue of confidence. Confidence is critical. If we don't hold on to it, if we don't do the things to help it grow, then we will find our actions and our attitudes less and less like Jesus. We will drift from him and his teaching. But the positive side is, the more confident that we are, the more that we do to grow in that confidence in our faith, our rootedness, then we will draw near to his throne. We won't run from him, we will run to him. And we will have great reward because he will help us. I want us to be a church that is growing, but not merely numerically. Getting bigger is the unfortunate sole aim of too many churches. If you grow with no roots, you will topple in the storm. The church you build up quickly with no rootedness will fall. So I want us to be rooted down deep, growing out of that depth. I want us to grow as tall and as wide as the Lord will allow us to. But it must be done from the depth of our hearts and our minds in Christ. So I want us to be confident in our faith. I want us to be immovable in that confidence that no matter the earthly loss, we will always choose heavenly reward. And that we will become more and more zealous to draw near to God's throne because we know and believe he is merciful and good and that he will reward us. So I want to look pastorally at what Peter said, because Peter has this same concern for his church that he is writing to. He wanted that church to grow in their zeal and their mission, and he wanted them to do that by trusting in and being confident in Christ and his return. Because if Christ is returning, then we will stand before him. And that reality must dictate how we live. So, in your notes, Peter sought to strengthen the church, exhorting them to assure confidence in Christ and His return by presenting two pieces of authoritative evidence. We started this last week. Peter wants the church to be strengthened. He wants them to grow in their faith and be confident in it. And he presents to them two pieces of evidence that he says you can trust in these things. The first one is the testimony of the apostles. That's what we dealt with last week. If you weren't here, the sermon's on our website if you'd like to listen to that. The second evidence, authoritative evidence that he presented is the one we're going to deal with today. The prophetic word. The prophetic word. How can we... You and I, this is the question that's before us, it's the question that we presented last week. How can we have confidence that what we believe about Jesus and His return is true? And how can we grow in confidence that the person of Christ is alive and will help us and will redeem us if we wait on Him? And so one of the things is we can look to the life of the apostles, that's what we dealt with last week, and now Peter presents the other side of that coin, which is the prophetic word. So let's read verses 19 to 21 again together. Peter writes and says, We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, 
as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's talk a little bit about what Peter is saying here. Let's start in verse 19. I want to look at the phrase, the prophetic word more fully confirmed. What does he mean there? Here is one of the evidences. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Peter is likely talking about the prophecies collected in the Old Testament that concerned the Messiah and the coming of His kingdom. And if you will remember last week that as Peter is expounding on the evidence of eyewitness of the apostles, he points to this moment on this mountain called the Transfiguration where he and James and John, three of the apostles, saw Jesus in His heavenly glorified form. And Jesus had told them beforehand that they would see a glimpse of the kingdom of God coming in power. And so Peter is thinking about these prophecies from the Old Testament that pointed to the Messiah to come, and he is thinking about being on that mountain and seeing the kingdom of God before him in the glorified form of Jesus, and he's saying those prophecies were confirmed in what we saw. We believed those prophecies before, but now they have been even more fully confirmed because we have begun to see these prophecies coming to pass. The events that they saw in the life and the death of Jesus show us that prophecies from the Old Testament that were related to the coming of Jesus were true. That was how you knew in the Old Testament that a prophet was real. If what he said came to pass, he was a true prophet. If what he said did not come to pass, he was a false prophet. These prophecies about Jesus were coming true in the day of the apostles. And so we could be assured, he says, of those prophecies and that other prophecies would still come to pass. And Peter says, look in verse 20. He says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Excuse me, that's verse 21. Look at verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. That's what I want you to look at. The phrase prophecy of Scripture tells us that prophecy is part of the overall collection of God's Word for His people. It's part of it. Scripture. The word Scripture means writings, sacred writings. And that word is used 51 times in the New Testament referring exclusively to written words that come from the 39 books of the Old Testament. The reason that's important is because every time Scripture is mentioned, it is pointing back to the 39 books that we have known as the Old Testament. No other books. Those books. That is Scripture. And the New Testament tells us that those sacred writings, those Scriptures are breathed out by God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. 
So the writings that we have as God's Word was breathed out by God, which means God spoke it. God spoke what men wrote. And Peter says that's true of prophecy and that's true of all Scripture, all genres of Scripture, that it's breathed out by God. So from this point on in the sermon, we're not going to deal with just prophecy, but we're going to talk about Scripture as a whole. That all of the writings that we have are breathed out by God. And in verse 21, Peter gives us three important characteristics about Scripture, and these are in your notes. The first important characteristic that he tells us about Scripture is that men spoke. No prophecy was ever produced, and therefore no Scripture was ever produced, by the will of man, but men spoke from God. Men spoke. So what we have true about the Bible is that God spoke and God breathed out Scripture, but He used men to do so. He communicated through people, human beings. Now, here's what's very interesting about that. In Peter's day, that idea that gods would speak through people was a very common idea. The Hellenistic, the Greek culture with all of their Greek mythological gods, one of their belief systems were that God spoke and they would speak through men. So that was not unusual. But in the Greek culture, gods would speak through men by possessing the men. They would take them over. They would control the members of their body and dictate to them what they would say. So it wasn't that the men were speaking. They were basically just these vessels that were overcome by the gods. That is not how the Bible presents Scripture. It is not merely dictation. Yes, there were times where God came to people and said, write this down. But the majority of the Bible comes to us by men writing in their own languages with their own personality. If we took five of you in this room and sent you on an all-expense-paid road trip out west, we're not going to do that. But if we did that, and we said the only catch is when you get back, you have to write an essay, a paper about your experience. And all five of you went together, and you went on this one-month road trip out west, and then you came back, and you wrote about that trip you would tell one story from five different perspectives. You would tell about the same things, and there would be overlap in the stories that you were telling. But at the same time, there would be a whole lot of differences because every one of you speaks differently. You use different words. You have different thoughts. You grew up in different environments. When I was growing up, the way that we did road trips impact the way that we do road trips now, or the way that I do them. You can ask my kids, but if we go on a road trip, a very common thing that I do is as we're going down the road, I point out things on the side of the road. If we pass a group of cows, I will point and say, look guys, cows. 
If, if we pass a water tower, I will say, look at that water tower. Look at that scenery. If we pass a cotton field, I'll say, guys, there's cotton. I, I, and my kids just totally ignore me and they, they pay no attention. I do that because when I was growing up, that's what my dad did. My dad loved to make a five-hour trip to the beach a nine-hour trip to the beach because he loved to stop all along the road and look at different things and sceneries. I have memories of climbing fire towers. Some of you don't even know what that is, but fire towers and being up in the top of them and walking through cotton fields and all kinds of things that my dad would just stop and say, we're going to get out here. And he loved that. So I do that. Now, some of you, you grew up, and if you were going on a road trip, it was hands on the steering wheel, eyes straight ahead, we're getting there as fast as we can. It is not about the journey, it is about the destination. And so if, if, if you were to write about your trip out west, some of you would focus on things you saw as you journeyed, some of you would focus on what happened when you got there. Biblical writers were men who were speaking. And they were using their personalities and their words and their backgrounds and their heart and their mind and their emotions were engaged in in what they were writing. God did it in such a way that they never lost themselves. I would even submit to you that God planned their very lives and backgrounds so that they would write the way He wanted them to write. It is not dictation where He took their body over in possession and told them what to say. God used their personalities. So men spoke, that's characteristic number two, excuse me, characteristic number one. Characteristic number two is from God. Men spoke from God. So these men spoke, but they were speaking from God, which means ultimately God ensured they said exactly what He wanted them to say. God prepared them in their life story, and then He moved them by His Spirit So they never lost their personality, but they said exactly what He wanted them to say. They used the words He wanted them to use. God owns every word of the Bible. He claims every single word is originated in Him. He safeguarded them from writing anything that was an error, and He led them into all truth, and He takes responsibility for that. Look in in, in verse 17 and 18. From last week, if you look in verse 17 and 18, you will see the word born, B-O-R-N-E. The voice that they heard on the mountain was born by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. What Peter was saying was the voice we heard came, originated from heaven. Now look at verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. That word produced is the exact same word that is translated born in verse 17 and 18. Which means that Peter is saying, just as the voice came from heaven, the Scriptures have come from heaven. They're produced in the same source, God. Scripture is not merely a collection of wise sayings or helpful thoughts or ethical teachings. Man did not invent this. It did not come from the will of man. It did not come from their imagination or their desire. They did not sit down and say, okay, we're going to write out Scripture now. Scripture was born from the will of God, which leads us to the third characteristic of Scripture, 
that the fact that men spoke from God is evidenced by an unparalleled unity in diversity. The fact that men spoke from God is evidenced by an unparalleled, unequaled in the world unity in diversity. What I mean is there is no book like the Bible anywhere. Compare it to the other religious books that are given so much precedent in our day. When you think about the Book of Mormon, it was written by one man. When you think about Islam and the Quran, it was written about one man by some scribes writing about the prophet Muhammad, and it happened over a period of about two decades. You're talking about books written by or from one person over the course of just a few years. But when you talk about the Bible, you are talking about a book that was written by 40 different authors over 40 different generations. They were authors that were kings and peasants, fishermen, poets, scholars. They lived on three different continents in different languages. They wrote and it happened over a period of 1,500 years. And yet, when you look at the Bible, it speaks with one voice in harmony, in continuity, telling the story of God's redemption of His people and pointing to one person, Jesus Christ. How is that possible? It is possible one way men spoke from God. I said a moment ago, I want us to be immovable in confidence that I want us to be rooted down deep in our faith. And for that to be true, we must be confident that we have God's Word and that He's speaking to us. There are no shortages today of people who will call into question the authenticity and authority of the Bible. You will hear in this world very plausible-sounding voices that say, you really can't believe what that says. And I want you to know that while a lot of those people think they are wise in telling you something new, it is nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun, Solomon says. Think about it for a moment. As long as God has been speaking to His people, which is as long as they have existed, the enemy of God has been trying to undermine what God says and call it into question. Is that not what happened with Adam and Eve? God spoke to them and the enemy showed up and said, did he really say that? It's nothing new, church. It's as old as humanity. Did God really say that? Do you really think that's true? You really think that's what he spoke? In Peter's day, false teachers were rising up to create doubt that God was really teaching through the apostles and He's doing it today. And I want to take a moment in this sermon to address that. Because especially for the younger people here, I don't want the first time you run into people questioning the Bible for you to think, we never heard about that in church. One of the frailties of how we've done church for so many years is we've just told people, this is what we believe. Why? Because that's what we believe. Believe it. And the first time someone comes along and they say, you don't really believe that. You know this is true, don't you? And they present some kind of evidence in the contrary. People's confidence gets rattled. The Bible can uphold 
The Bible can withstand our questions. God's Word has remained through it all, throughout time of people calling it into question. So this morning, I want to give you five considerations, five things that I want you to ponder to grow in confidence that the Bible really is the Word of God. This is not all-encompassing, and we can't cover all of these in depth, but I just want to touch on five considerations I think you can make to be confident that the Bible is truly God's Word. First of all, the consideration that that's the Bible's claim. It is the Bible's claim that it is the Word of God. We've already seen this. Peter says, Scripture is born from God. Paul said, Scripture is breathed out from God. The psalmist that we read earlier today declared that the instructions and the decrees written down for the people of God, the Old Testament writings, were written down as the Word of God. It was the Word of God, a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. The letter of Hebrews that I mentioned a moment ago opens Hebrews 1 verse 1 saying, Long ago and at many times God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God spoke. That was God speaking. What they, what they heard, what they wrote, what we have captured in the Old Testament, that was God's Word sourced in God. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to clarify that God has kept speaking. And He has kept speaking now in a more superior way, and that way is Jesus, His Son. Which means that in the Old Testament, in the sacred writings, God was not done with Scripture. That was not the close of what we call the canon. He was going to keep writing and keep talking His Word, and now He was going to do it through His Son, Jesus. Which brings us to the second consideration, the authority of Jesus. I want you to consider the claims of the Bible, that it is the Word of God, and I want you to consider the authority of Jesus. While these Old Testament writings were sacred, they pointed to the Messiah... When you get to the New Testament, you have a collection of the words and the acts of the Messiah. So the Old Testament is pointing ahead, and the New Testament is giving an account of the Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who John said in chapter 1, verse 14, was the Word that became flesh. God's Word took on human form, in the Messiah and the person of Jesus. And Hebrews tells us that just as God was breathing out His Word through the prophets in the Old Testament, He continued breathing out His Word in a superior way through Jesus. And here's what Jesus did. Jesus, in His authority, appointed a distinct group of men to be His messengers, the apostles. And Jesus appointed these men and He gave them the Holy Spirit. And He told them that the Holy Spirit, after He had ascended to heaven, would help them remember everything He said. You don't have to write it all down now, guys. You don't have to worry about if you'll remember what I said. The Holy Spirit will come and remind you of everything I said. 
And not only that, but Jesus said in John 16, 14, that the Holy Spirit who knows the mind of God will lead you into further truth that I can't teach you right now because you can't handle it. And He will take what is mine and He will declare it to you. Where does authority come from? Where does authority for words come from? Words have authority if the person who spoke them has authority. And it doesn't matter if they speak them directly or if they speak them through a messenger. If it's the words of the person, it carries authority. Parents know this. You have all sent one of your kids to another one of your kids, if they are of age, and said, go tell them to do this. And then every single one of you have had the experience where that kid comes back and says, they said no. And then you have said, rather than get up and go yourself, you have said, you tell them, I said, do it now. You, you tell them, I said, come here. And what you are saying is, I am giving you the authority to tell them what to do. They're my messenger. Okay, that's a very imperfect illustration. But it doesn't matter if Jesus said it directly or if He spoke it through the messengers. If He gave them the authority and He is speaking through them by the Holy Spirit, it all has authority. I remember about 19 years ago, right before we came to Agape, we were church-looking, church-seeking. And we were in this church, and we went to this Sunday school class in this church. And it was a different denomination, and I won't throw them under the bus. But at the time, there was this great conversation that was happening about a cultural issue of the day, a cultural issue we still deal with even now. And they were going back and forth in this Sunday school about this cultural issue and which side they should fall on. And it is an issue that is dealt very clearly with in the New Testament. But I remember this lady being in that Sunday school class, and I remember her saying, we wouldn't have this problem if just Jesus had said something about it. And here's what she meant. It is not covered in the words that are read. The words, I'm not against red letter Bibles. If you have one, that's, you, know, you don't have to go and change it out. But here is the downside of a red letter Bible. It emphasizes the words Jesus directly spoke and tends to call into question the ones he didn't speak directly that he spoke through his apostles. So people look at it and they say, well, I want to see it in red because that's what Jesus said. But Jesus said, I spoke all of this, some of it directly, some of it through my apostles, but it's all from me and it's all authoritative and you should listen to all of it. Every word of this Bible is from God, red or black. Jesus had the authority to authorize the apostles. And that's what He did. God's Word is sometimes spoken directly in person, sometimes in dictation, mostly in inspiration. But every word in the Bible is from God. And Jesus ensured that every word He wanted written by the apostles was perfectly written. And I want to show you some internal evidence. So in your Bible, flip over to 2 Peter 3. 
We're in 2 Peter chapter 1. I want you to look at 2 Peter chapter 3. I want you to see something that Peter says as he ends this letter. Look at verse 15 and 16. He ends this letter, and we'll deal with this in a few weeks again, but he says, "...count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction." as they do the other Scriptures. Two things Peter says there about Paul's letters. One, they're sometimes hard to understand. If you ever find yourself finding it difficult to understand the Bible, know that the Bible says that is a shared experience. But God will not leave you alone and He will give you clarity in what the Bible says if you continue on. Here's the other thing Peter said. He called what Paul wrote Scripture. This happened in the 60s A.D. He elevated the writings of Paul. I told you earlier, 51 times Scripture is used in the New Testament referring to the sacred writings of the Old Testament. And here, Peter says what Paul is writing is Scripture the same as the Old Testament. Paul in 1 Timothy 5 calls the Gospel of Luke. He quotes it and calls it Scripture. The point is that the apostles were aware that God was breathing out His Word through their lives, just as He breathed out the Word of God in the Old Testament. God was inspiring apostles to write down His Word. And that was evident from the very early days of the church, which brings us to consideration number three, the confirmation of the early church. The third thing I want you to consider in thinking about the authority of the Bible is the confirmation of the early church. If you don't like history, just bear with me for a minute. At some point, every one of you, especially those of you who are young, like really young, I know all of us in here are young, but like 18 and under, at some point you are going to hear someone say that the Bible and the books in it were simply chosen by men in religious councils that happened in the late 300s and early 400s. That these men got together in these religious councils and they they got all of these different sacred writings and they chose which ones would be in the Bible. And let me just say that if that is what God had chosen to do to bring us the Bible, He was perfectly within His power and His authority to do that. But what I want you to hear me say is the reality is that statement is historically inaccurate. That's not how we came to have the Bible that we have today. The 39 books of the Old Testament that we have today were written down by Jewish historians in a verifiable list 200 years before Jesus was even born. 600 years before these councils even took place. 
Jesus and His apostles quote the Old Testament 300 times in the New Testament. And every single one of those quotations come from the 39 books we have today as the Old Testament. You don't see a single argument in Scripture from Jesus or His apostles with religious leaders over which books they called authoritative. The canon of the Old Testament was complete 200 years before Jesus was even born. And then we're told that the apostles recognized God was speaking through them to add to the canon of Scripture, what we have in the New Testament. And in Acts 2.42, we are told that the early church had devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Within just the first years of the church, just the first few months after Jesus ascended to heaven, the early church was already devoting themselves to what the apostles were teaching because they believed it was the authoritative Word of God. The two dozen letters that we have in the New Testament, came into existence over a period of about 50 years. And they were distributed to all different types of churches in all different regions and continents. And no doubt those same churches were getting all kinds of letters from other religious writers, because that's how people communicated then. They wrote letters. But it was a certain collection of those letters that the early church determined over time to be authoritative. You saw in all of these different regions, on all of these different continents, this certain group of letters rising to the top that the church considered to be authoritative. And by the time you get to the end of the second century, like in the late 100s, within just a century of the last New Testament letter being written, you see verifiable list written down by church leaders of the 27 books of the New Testament that were generally accepted by all the churches as God's Word. By the time you get to those religious councils 200 years later, all those councils did was confirm what the church had already determined to be true that these letters were the authoritative Word of God. They didn't sit and pick and choose which ones went and which ones didn't. They affirmed what the church had already discerned. And that leads us to consideration for the goodness and the power of God. The goodness and the power of God. Church, do you not believe the faithfulness of God to His church? Do you not believe that God wants us to hear from Him? Do you not believe that God wants us to have His Word? Do you not believe that the One who created everything by the power of His Word has the ability to work through history to give us the book He wants us to have? He is good to do that and He is powerful to do that. And that leads us to consideration number five, the testimony of the Spirit to your heart and soul. The Christian knows when they read God's Word that it is power to their life. The testimony of Christians for generations and generations and generations has been that this book has authority and power and persuasiveness like like no other book that they've ever read. 
I remember teaching a class with my wife one time for Lifeline. And I remember reading a passage of Scripture in that class to a group of moms who were trying to work on reconciliation with their kids. And the Scripture I read is one that we don't maybe even think a lot about, but that you are made in the image of God. I read that Scripture. And the next week we came back for that class and one of the moms in the class pulled me aside and said, can I talk to you for a moment? And I said, sure. And she began to tell me that earlier in the week she had gotten to one of her lowest points and that she things were not going well in her job and she didn't believe she was going to get her kids back and her family was in shambles and she felt all alone. And she said, I went to my house and I intended to take my life. But as I went to do that, as I thought about how to do that, I heard that verse that you read to me in my head, that I was made in the image of God. And she said, I don't even know what all that means, but if I am made in God's image, I know that my life has purpose and that I can live. That phrase, that Word of God saved her life. That is the testimony of this Bible for generations and generations and generations where Jesus says in John 10, My sheep hear My voice. You know God speaking to you as a believer. So why should I take my life and stake it on this Word? Why should I meditate on this Word? And the Bible says, because it's not from man, and it's not from His will, but it is from God. Why should I give my time to this? Why should I wake up early or go to bed late? Why should I push through the fact that I don't read well? or this bores me, or I don't understand it. Why should I keep going? Because God has written down His Word for you. And He wants you to hear Him speaking. How do I know Christ will return? Because of the apostolic witness and the Word of God that's from God and been verified by their eyewitness accounts. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he wrote about the Bible, he said this, In this book, we have the only account of God that man has. What can we know about God truly except what we are told in this book? You can reason if you like through nature and you'll arrive at a Creator, but you will never arrive at Father or a loving God. You'll never know God as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is only as God has revealed Himself and His character and His holiness in this book that we really know anything about Him. But not only that, God has here revealed His own thoughts concerning man and life and the world. Here we are told how man came into existence, how all of man's troubles are the results of sin, and we are told what God has done about sin and what God is going to do about sin. Here we are told what's going to happen in the days that lie ahead, including the second coming of Christ. How can I know this is going to happen? Well, my ultimate and only answer is this. I find it in this book, and I believe this book is not the imagination of man, but of God, 
through the Holy Spirit speaking through man. So I want to end with this gospel plea. Church, will you draw near to God in confidence? Will you do, as verse 19 says, what Peter said, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. I put in parentheses in your handout what it means if you look at the Greek word we translated pay attention. It means bring it near to your heart and your mind. Will you every day bring this word near your mind and your heart? It means become addicted to it. Will you allow God to make this the thing you binge? The thing that you can't get enough of? The thing that gets you up early or keeps you up late or or consumes your lunch hours? Will you push aside certain things that are good things and will you consider them loss all for the gain of heaven and His Word? It means yield your life to it. Will you do what it says even when you don't want to? It means apply it. Will you do your best to live in the way this book tells you to live and the wisdom in which it tells you how to operate and make decisions? And Peter says, do this until the day you see the Word standing before you. There will be a day where you will see this book in the flesh. Jesus Christ in front of you. The morning star rising in your heart. Morning star means the light bringer. And on that day, when you see this word standing in front of you in the flesh, every uncertainty is removed. Every doubt, every uncertainty, every fear will be gone because that light will shine brightly in your heart. Until then, draw near to God through His Word. Worship team can come on up if you will. And those who are prayer partners today, if you will come up. Last week I ended telling you you have two choices. You can listen to the apostolic witness or you can reject it. And today I offer a similar admonition. You can receive this as God's Word or you can reject it. But if it is truly God's Word, then it carries all authority for your life on this earth and in eternity. And I beg you to pay attention to it. I plead with you today to pay attention to this Word. If you have never followed this Word to Christ and asked for the forgiveness of your sins, would you do that today? Would you give your life over to Jesus based on what God has said, that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved from their sin? 
And you can do that right where you are and it matters not the words you say. It matters the heart behind it. But if you do pray today to be saved or if you are wrestling with what that means, then my exhortation to you is do not leave this building without talking to someone so you can hold yourself accountable to that. You can come and talk to me. If you can't wait to the end of the service, I'll be right here and we'll talk right now. Or I'll get with you later this afternoon or this week. For those of us who know Jesus, what is His Word saying to us? What has He been saying to us? What has He said to us this morning? I urge you to listen and follow through. If you need someone to pray with you, that's what these people are here for. Anything you need to ask of, ask God for mighty works. Ask Him for perseverance. Ask Him for confidence. Whatever it is, they will pray with you. We're going to sing and worship for a moment. I'm going to let anyone who needs prayer come and be prayed for or come up to the front and pray. And then we're going to pause and we're going to pray for a member of our church who's having surgery this week, Stacy Pounders. We're going to pray for her in just a moment as a church. But before we do that, let us respond to God in His Word. Father, I thank You for the attentiveness of Your people today. I know that we have talked about a lot. I pray, God, that which You have spoken, You wanted to be heard, would rise to the top of our minds and our hearts and would not be forgotten. The way that You brought to remembrance the things that You said to the minds of the apostles and led them into all truth, I pray that You will bring to our minds remembrance of what You have spoken to us today and lead us into all truth. God, please save everyone here who doesn't know You. God, please bring back the people in this room right now who are wandering, who are playing with temptation and sin, who are struggling in anxiety. God, would You help us? Would You free people today? Would You do miracles today, God? Would You encourage our hearts today? Would You heal people physically who are sick God, would You cause people right now to have an urging in their heart and their mind to come and be prayed for because they believe that You're speaking to them and that You are going to hear. Would You help us to worship from our heart You, the God who has spoken to us, who loves us. And God, would You help none of us to be lost to the false teachers of this world Help us to have confidence in You and in the Word You have given us for all time. In Jesus' name, if you are not praying and you are willing and able to stand as we sing, let's sing and worship together and ponder what God is saying to us.